0: For some of our guests, I need offer no more by way of introduction than a list of shows. And so, Flora the Red Menace, Cabaret, Zorba, Chicago, Woman of the Year, Kiss of the Spider Woman, Steel Pier, Curtains, and the Scottsboro Boys, and many more. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and it's my great honor to spend the next hour with the composer, John Kander. Welcome, John. Morning. We are speaking, sadly, only a few days after the closing of Scottsboro Boys, but I'd like to take it back immediately to the positive side of that experience. Is that a show, since it was written with your late partner, Fred Abb, a number of years ago? Is that a show that you always believed would ultimately come to Broadway?
1: That's a strange answer to that. I, Fred would answer this differently. I I just, uh, it, for me, it was all about the writing. Uh, we started Scottsboro uh, in 19, no, in 2002, excuse me, with uh, Susan Stroman and Tommy Thompson and Fred and... Uh, Fred died in 2004. There were, at that time, four unfinished shows. And I don't remember making a conscious plan, but somehow or other it never occurred to me not to finish them. And Scottsboro was the last of those four to get finished. And Susan Strowman and Tommy and I, at some point, picked up the piece again and began to began to finish it, is a funny phrase.
0: Well, what kind of finishing did it need? Where was it in the work that you had done uh, at the point at which you went back to pick it up?
1: I would say there was maybe two-thirds of a score and a version of the book. But as in all of these projects, it's not that... uh, one day you meet and you say, Well that's it. We've got the script and we've got the score and that's what now we'll go in rehearsal. It doesn't work that way. Stro and Tommy and I went back to work on it. It was a continuation of just the ordinary pattern of writing that that we are all used to. So I would say the show got finished maybe three days before opening night. But it certainly wasn't
0: the ordinary pattern in that you did not have your writing partner there. Shows famously changed throughout rehearsals and, indeed, previews and, as you say, finished just before opening night. What was the process when there was a need for a song to be changed or, indeed, a new song to be written? I just wrote it. (laughs) Music, Music and lyrics? Yes. You had said to me once when we spoke before that on Curtains was when you began doing lyrics, you knew that there was a song that needed to be there. Had you always had a hand in the lyrics or was it truly something that you began to try out for the first time in a long time? I I know you wrote shows maybe back in college.
1: Well, I would, there's a sort of double answer to that, I think. One is certainly many years ago before I met Fred. Uh, I did uh, I did lyrics only because I liked to, and when Fred and I began to work together, we worked very very closely. In all our interviews or whatever, we always had to describe the fact that we worked in the same room at the same time, Fred improvising and me improvising. We lopped over into each other's territory a lot. And I certainly learned a great deal about writing lyrics from my experience with Fred. And actually, Curtains was the first of the unfinished shows that I got involved with in terms of trying to finish it. And with a certain amount of encouragement from my collaborators, I took on the. I put on Fred Ebb's hat, if you will, and rather enjoyed myself. Hmm. I would channel Fred to the best of my ability. Sometimes he gave me hell. And uh, (laughs) uh, hopefully in all four of these shows, nobody can tell where Fred left off and when I began. Then I won't ask you to detail it.
0: Let me ask you about the development of Scottsboro. You say you began the show in 2002. Was the minstrel show concept there from the very beginning? The minstrel show
1: was the solution. How do you mean that? In terms of telling a story of this nature, not only because of its specific racial connotations and the horror of it, but also because it's not a neat story. It isn't... uh, and then they met, and then the next day they went out, and then they encountered some difficulties, and then they got together. It's, it's, it's a story which is full of of many different characters. It goes over a number of years, and when we decided on the minstrel show, it's, it solved two problems. First of all, the, the basic framework of a minstrel show allows you to for those of you who don't know what a Mitchell show is, it's kind of a semicircle of performers with a an interlocutor who is in the center of the semicircle and he is a white man usually in charge of his performers who are stretched out on either side of him and if he says, let's sing a song, or Mr. Mr. Bones, will you tell us this story, or why don't we do a dance about this now, you can do it. It's a very formalized
0: theatrical structure from an earlier era. Yes. One which is now
1: considered to be a racist format. Absolutely. It also was the single most popular form of theatrical entertainment in this country for a hundred years. Hmm. And I can remember when they were traveling minstrel shows in the thirties. Wow! So that gave, that gave us the convenience of telling this sprawling story in bits and pieces. And the other thing was that when the minstrel show form, when you look at it, which and it seemed so benign over a hundred years, people simply accepted it. But when you look at it, the the racial implications of it are simply abhorrent. Mm. And so our use of the minstrel show allowed us and our eventual use of blackface for a certain amount of time allowed us to watch our actors wipe it off and uh, emerge as, as real people rather than little made-up puppet characters uh, which were really there to make white men feel that black people were a certain kind of stereotype and all had certain attitudes. All those songs that some of us, anyway, grew up with and all the Stephen Foster songs, and all the old folks at home, and all Swanee River things like that are all written by white men to be sung by imitation black people to make a white audience feel that life on the plantation was wonderful, and don't we miss it? Mm. But You
0: say it was the solution. Had you decided on the topic and begun writing, and then found this form? We do talking
1: before writing happens. It's, okay. uh, one of, I think, on every show that Fred and I ever worked on, and and certainly it continued to the to these last four shows. Mostly, what happens are long, long, long sessions of talking with your collaborators, and. Then, as I'm, I mean, I'm I'm shortcutting this, but then as a, a narrative begins to take place or solutions begin to come to you, then you're able to start writing. Hmm. First thing that has to happen is th- that you and the collaborators and your collaborators have to be doing the same piece.
0: So. It was not a case of you had written a musical and the director came up with a directorial concept. No, no, no. You never. and your collaborators, you, Fred and and David Thompson, the book writer. And, and, Sh- and Susan Strowe. And Stroh was, Stroh was there really from the oh, beginning, yes, even always. as you were writing it. Yes, it oh, she contributed
1: the, a great deal. Hmm. Uh, the whole concept of the lady, for instance, hmm. uh, who is a kind of framework for this piece was Stroh's. Interesting. So when you began
0: to write the musical idiom was was known that you would write in the style of some of the writers you just mentioned.
1: Yes. Things evolve in a kind of natural way. At least, it, 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 Freddie and I were really very lucky in most instances with our collaborators. And I think, I've preached this a lot, the solution to something as complicated as doing a m- piece for the musical stage where you have so many elements and so many people creating, has to do with talking. And the secret word is collaboration, uh, which somehow or other they don't seem to teach in conservatories. Hmm.
0: Let's talk about some of these other final four. Curtains began
1: many years ago. Yes. As Who Killed David Merrick? <laughs> yes, so to see, actually, it is so complicated, I won't waste your time with this, but it goes... It's before that as really? well. Really? It started out as a musical about the Foreign Legion. You don't really want to hear this because it'll take all day. But anyway, we ended up showing it to Peter Stone. It was a play within a play. He made it a play within a play and uh, then we play, we started our our collaboration. We knew Peter very well and Most of the time, most of the work on at least the evolution of a a show, in our instance, happened around Fred's kitchen table. Hmm. He lived four blocks from me, and uh, I liked to go out to work, and he didn't. And so I would usually go over to his house, and then Terrence McNally or or, uh, Peter Stone or whoever our collaborators were that would would usually sit around the kitchen table, and we would play – a game which I have come to call "What If," and uh, that goes back really to the almost the very beginning of our collaboration. Certainly goes back to Cabaret, where we would sit in Hal's apartment, Joe Masteroff, and Hal and Fred and me, and we would play "What If," "What If," somebody throws a brick for the window, or "What If Sally has an abortion," or "What If," and then, then what well, you, well, you can go down the line. That's how almost. I would say every. I, I would say every musical that we wrote was born. Well, that begs a question.
0: You and Fred Ebb reached a stature that when people speak of the shows which you wrote, they are Candor and Ebb shows, just in the same way that we speak of Stephen Sondheim shows. There are other collaborators. And while you and Fred had such longevity as partners, such unique singular partnership, there were other people that were variously brought into the projects. Did you always originate the ideas or did people bring you ideas that Uh, the two of you decided? All kinds of ways. Hmm.
1: Hal Prince two weeks before Flora the Red Menace opened uh, said to Fred and me an amazing thing which I've the story I've told a lot they said whatever happens with Flora the Red Menace the day afterwards we'll meet at my house and we'll talk about the next piece and I don't know a producer today who would who would have done that but uh, Flora was not a success and it had not the worst reviews in the world but it, it, it didn't run very long but the day after it opened we met at at Hal's house and started talking about a piece which became Cabaret. Hmm. And every... Uh, so w- w- that project came from Hal. So did, as a matter of fact, so did Flora. And so did Zorba. came directly from Hal. Uh, something like Kiss of the Spider Woman. One day, Freddie and I were sitting and he said with no preamble kiss of the spider woman and i said yes Hmm. and then we called hal prince and we simply said the title and he said yes without any need for explanation all three of us immediately responded to it everybody afterwards thought that was the worst idea in the world but and was that based upon
0: the film the novel and i believe there had already been a play adaptation it was built it was on the novel on the novel interesting interesting let 's stay with the four that we 've been talking about. certainly, Curtains was a wholly original musical. Scottsboro Boys, although based on historical incident, was a wholly original musical the The other two are adaptations of major works of gel- of dramatic literature let 's talk about the visit um, a very challenging dark piece of material. What led you to want to take on The Visit?
1: I cannot remember. Hmm. It it could have been just something we were were talking about. It could have been Terrence. I, I don't know. Now, The Visit had a production
0: in, I believe, about 2001 out at the Goodman, and then again in 2008 at Signature Theater in Virginia. At this point, while we have not seen it in New York, do you feel the show is finished? Or is it a show that you still feel needs work and that you'd like to see
1: I have think more life? I, my feeling is that by the time we did it uh, uh, at the Signature in uh, in Washington or Virginia, Uh That version is a version that I feel it's pretty, pretty complete. If we ever did a production of it or get a production of it, I don't think I would change very much. And
0: what about All About Us, also known as Over and Over, originally known for both the source material and your original title, The Skin of Our Teeth, an exceptionally Experimental play when Thornton Wilder first wrote it, seemingly a difficult piece. We don't we don't often see the play revived.
1: What spoke to you about musicalizing that? Uh, uh, Joe Stein, who wrote the book, and Fred and I had wanted to work together again. We had done Zorba together, and we were friends, and we were talking about projects, and the skin of our teeth came up. And Again, I can't say who said it first, mm-hmm. uh, and we talked about it. We both, each of us had different feelings about the piece. It's a it's a it's a play that I've loved ever since I first read it or saw it at co- saw a production in college. We talked about it a lot, and eventually de- decided we would really like to to try it and so we got uh uh the rights for a time and began to work on it the more we the more we worked on it the more we enjoyed working on it because of the form of the play itself adapting it in for musical terms was complicated and hard when something is complicated and hard, that doesn't mean that it's not fun. I think Leonard Bernstein and Jerry Robbins, and I think Comden agreed, I know Comden and Greed, had messed around with it and, and, uh, and thought of making an adaptation of it, and I don't know quite how far they got and then dropped it.
0: Hmm.
1: On all of these
0: pieces, I'd read a comment by you that. There's a benefit when writing a musical to not set it in the immediate present, that there's a value in having some period that you're looking at.
1: Well, it's a theory of mine, actually. It okay. has to do with musical theater in all of its forms, whether you go back to the Camerata and the beginnings of opera. Uh, in which most of the stories they used were mythological, or at least hundreds of years removed, or whether you go into operatic literature, for instance, Traviata, when it was first premiered, was contemporary to its audience, and it was a flop. And it was revived, I can't remember how, how much later, but they moved it back by at least one generation, perhaps two. And it was a success, not just for that reason, but if you look at the musicals, think of all the wonderful, wonderful Jerome Kern scores and all the musicals that he wrote, most of which were contemporary to the time of the audience, and they don't work exactly, except for Showboat. And Showboat is removed not so much generationally, but it's put in, it's, it's exotic, it's away from the audience. When the Rogers and Hammerstein musicals, South Pacific, Oklahoma, The Sound of Music, any of them that you may, the big successes that you name are all at some remove from the audience. When you get into Allegro, which uh, was contemporary, didn't quite work. And I would say that 90% of the musicals and operas that did become popular and successful are at a kind of remove from the daily life of the audience. And it's partly, I think, because singing is not daily expression. When, If you're going to have di- uh, dialogue that is sung, or if you're going to express opinions or feelings, There is something a little bit exotic about that. For you as a
0: composer, the fact that there is always this remove, does that in some way direct you
1: in the musical style you compose in? Well, it depends on on the piece. In in many ways, yes. Certainly, when uh, we wrote Cabaret, I began a process which I, I have still continued to this day, which is to listen to lots and lots and lots and lots of German jazz this is cabaret of the 20s, and then to forget about it. Just completely forget about it and take a chance that somehow or other the style of that music would have soaked into me and uh, would come out hopefully not as imitation but as a part of as a, as a flavor inside of what I write it was the same with Zorba, listening to lots of Greek music or in Chicago immersing myself again in twenties American jazz and then but uh, but putting it away mm-hmm. what
0: about the visit did, did that have a specific reference point for you uh
1: the visit the visit has a and i, I don 't know how to be too specific about the the visit is a European piece, Uh, and I can't say anything more than that, but it is, in many ways, an operetta. Hmm. One of the things I found out about The Visit when we were starting to do it, and I've, I've loved Viennese operetta, again, all my life, I'm a sort of trash basket of styles, I think, Uh, I think
0: we could could say a cornucopia. It would be a lot better (laughs) in the press materials.
1: The interesting thing about the story of The Visit, and this really intrigued me when we started to write because it was an accident. The Visit is the merry widow turned on its head. The plot structure of The Visit is the plot structure of the merry widow turned upside down. And if I said to you, I have a, an idea for a story about an impoverished country and a very, very rich woman comes to that country and the whole town is, is encouraging a match between one of its leading citizens who had some history with that woman and the woman in hopes that she will Give them all her money. What would you say that was? Well, that's a romantic comedy or a romantic fantasy. That
0: is The Merry Widow. That is the story. But I know the story of the visit, and it is indeed the opposite, because she comes to town and says, I will save your town on one condition. Kill this man who was once my lover. But before that happens,
1: the town is encouraging uh, that citizen to in a funny way, almost seduce this woman because they have a history together. And that's exactly what happens in The Merry Widow, except it's, it's turned on its head. Hmm. Interesting. So, so uh, what I... Anyway... Uh, for musical style... For musical style, it seemed to me the, that we were in some way writing an operetta, a Viennese operetta.
0: Did you invert the music? Did you do something to it that would take it from?
1: There is a flavor in the music uh, which is certainly very waltzy. C- could you share a little of that with us? Do you think? Uh, sure. There's a. This is a kind of a, a. A reminiscence that they have together, and uh, and it goes all through the score, and it's. quite viennese but it's reminiscent of that style and they're just they just keep singing you 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 everywhere you you,
0: you." anyway so at any point in the show do you darken that oh yeah so how does that change uh,
1: over the course of the show it's it's uh where does it end up It's played very stridently and very brutally at the moment that they're strangling him. Hmm. Can you play a little of that? Well, probably not. (laughs) But it's...
0: Something like that. Wow. Let me ask you, because of this idea of inverting music, this takes me back to Cabaret and Tomorrow Belongs to Me. Which begins so beautifully, and I guess both in the play and in the film was handled different ways in terms of it wants to fool you from what it is to what it becomes.
1: It, well, it wants to seduce you, really. Uh, and in both the film, I think Bobby found a very good way to, of of doing something, which is essentially a stage device. To Bob Fosse, yes. Yeah. On the stage, it was sung once, just beautifully, by a bunch of waiters, and uh, the audience should feel, isn't that lovely? Wouldn't I like to be up there with those guys singing that pretty song? Mm. And then later, it takes a very ugly turn, and you realize the people who are singing that song are demons. So... Can you show
0: me just a little bit of how is it played beautifully, and then what has to be done
1: to it to make it ominous? Very little is done to that song musically. It's the armbands, the change. When you huh. it's, it's when you find out who's singing it. It, it uh, the first time you hear it, it's it's a cappella and very sweet. So the notes are are simply. Later on, it's done as a kind of, with an accordion and a a kind of uh, heavy-handed German beat, but not so far away.
0: (laughs) But it's no more brutal than that. Yeah, but it does become more of a beer hall song than a beer garden
1: song. That's that's a good phrase, yes. That's exactly (laughs) right.
0: Interesting. It, it's really interesting. Let's go back. We've been focusing so much on these four most recent shows. To speak very quickly, you grew up in Kansas City. I- you went to Oberlin College. You came to New York to get a master's at Columbia. You started working in some cases doing dance arrangements and as a rehearsal pianist. I
1: was very lucky. I When I was a at Columbia, I had an assistantship in the opera workshop. I was a sort of musical schizophrenic at that time. I didn't know which way I wanted to go. I love—I uh, mean, opera is a very big part of my life yet today, and so were musicals. Anyway, through that, I began being able to earn, earn a living, accompanying or playing people's auditions or coaching singers, and. Everything leads to something else that's funny about this business. I, you just sort of do what you do and hope that you can continue to earn a living. Uh, I was coaching singers, and then I had studied conducting, and I became an assistant conductor in, in summer stock, which means uh, that I would be playing in the pit. Until Saturday matinee, and then, I would, and then I would be conducting the performance. And it was a wonderful school, uh, at least to learn what you to do. You have to just jump in and do things. Uh, I did that for about. Th- I became the conductor at this theater, and so I was there really for about three years. And I've discovered that. The theater community is really quite small. And once you walk through a curtain which says this person is a professional, so we can trust him, or he's worth hiring to play piano or conduct or write arrangements, there's nobody that you can't... Everybody is about two or three people removed. Hmm. Uh, I was conducting an off-Broadway show, a Noel Coward show called Conversation Piece, and Peter Matz was doing the dance music for, I think, a show called Jamaica. We were in Philadelphia. He was doing our orchestrations, and I was meeting with him, and West Side Story opened. And I remember the opening night, I think, Somehow I got a ticket in Philadelphia, and I I was at the Bellevue Stratford Hotel, which had a big bar downstairs, which which at that time was called the Variety Club, and uh, I was down there having a drink. There was a there was a big bar. I can remember this very vividly, uh, and a throng of people trying to, trying to get drinks, and I was uh, about six or seven back, and I kept sort of raising my hand, and I'm not the world's most aggressive person. And uh, a man in front of me uh, saw my distress and asked if... Uh, he said, tell me what you want, and then I'll when I order mine, I'll order yours. And, and we did, and we talked afterwards, and he was the pianist for West Side Story. Uh, a year later, he was uh, going on his vacation, for three week vacation, and he asked me if I wanted to sub. And uh, for those who don't know what subbing is, it means it's you just a, you substitute. You're a substitute player for the person who's on vacation. Well, so I said yes, as I generally did to, mo- <laughs> to most things. And while I was there for three weeks, Ruth Mitchell, who was the uh, stage manager for West Side Story, had. Understudy rehearsals and uh, replacement rehearsals that she had to have, which and part of my job then was to to play those those rehearsals, and so she got used to me. And then uh, Jerry Robbins was starting a project called Gypsy, and she called. Uh, because she needed somebody to play the, the auditions for that, you usually hire somebody, a pianist, to uh, to be there when people come in and audition. Well, the auditions went on for weeks and weeks and weeks, and uh, by by the time it was over, Robbins said to me, literally, uh, "Would you like to Would you like to do this show with me?" And I said would you like me to? And he said, yes. And I said, yes. That was a conversation that I can remember word for word. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. And <laughs> uh, that's how I ended up being in, uh, doing the dance music for Gypsy. And then I did the dance music for a musical called Irma La Deuce. And by that time, as I said, this business is very small. And uh, I was a show that I had written with my two best friends james and william goldman who you knew from camp yes and uh it was called a family affair and without getting into the complications of it we were able to get it produced and i've said this often i am convinced to this day that if i had been aggressive enough to get my own drink at the bellevue stratford hotel uh at the opening of West Side Story, I would never have had a career. So the meek shall inherit.
0: I beg my- the meek shall inherit. Yes, <laughs> it, I so. It, it, it has, there's some benefit there. As I researched to talk to you today, I kept hoping I would come up with some grand, romantic, elaborate story about how you and Fred Ebb finally crossed paths but in every interview it seemed the same prosaic story you had the same music publisher and he said you guys should meet that's correct
1: and we had appar- according to uh our friend and uh early agent uh, richard seff he had introduced us at uh, at another time, which is probably true, but it wasn't anything that I r- certainly remember. But it didn't
0: take when Richard did it. It took well, when well, Tommy Volando did it. It Volando was, not, it was it. just
1: a hello. Mm-hmm. kind of. So, and uh, As I said, I don't I don't remember it, but I'm sure it took place. But it was when Tommy Volando said, I think you guys should meet each other. I think you'd like each other. Uh, that was uh, when we started. Truer words were never
0: spoken. Your first show together, right. Golden Gate. Now,
1: did it never get produced or never opened it never got produced okay. we had a pro- we had a producer uh who took us all over the place to do play auditions and to, to to audition the show and but it never happened
0: and it was about a man who believed he was the emperor of San Francisco yeah
1: it's a it's a it's a wonderful myth it, I,
0: because it was never heard or seen do you recall any of the music from it? Have you had occasion to
1: to think back on it? Is it something you could share well, there, a little with us? There are songs which have been sung from it. Uh, there's a song that both Liza and Cheetah have done, called I'm One of the Smart Ones. There's a song in The Happy Time, which is actually from Golden Gate, which hmm. is... Uh, a certain girl,
0: which is actually from Golden Gate. Hmm. Do, have you done that much? Are you one of those composers, or were you as a team? Well, as Peter would say, Ina Kleina Trunk song.
1: <laughs> well, there, you've beaten me to it. Do you pull songs that you might nah. have written often? Uh, no, very, very rarely. And the reason for that is not because of any rule, but because each piece that you write is so different in atmosphere. That it's never. Oh boy, let's try and put this song in. Hmm. There, are, there are two or three examples of songs which were from uh, other pieces. What are those? Uh, the song maybe this time, which was in the film of Cabaret, is actually a song we had written uh, years before. Hmm. And a certain girl, I, which I pointed right. out.
0: Well, let me ask you. I read. And is this true that you? Ultimately, had written about sixty songs for cabaret. And I'm right, saying six zero. So that means there's a lot of songs from cabaret. That doesn't mean they're any good. Well, is it that they're not good, or is it oh, that they, they, they didn't right. work in the context of the piece? And those performers are Liza Minnelli and Cheetah Rivera. You say you don't have a candor, and there wasn't a candor in Ebb's style. But is there a Liza style and a Cheetah style when you know you're
1: writing for them? Absolutely. Well, no, style is not the right word. Okay. But with Liza and Cheetah, whom we knew so well, uh, if you put their voices or their personas in the back of your head, you find yourself hearing them sing what you're writing that affects what you write when we knew that lenya was going to be in cabaret you put her persona in the back of your head and her voice and then without thinking about it you don't write for that person you try to write that person hm it doesn't even try it it's it's not something you think about it isn't oh boy this is a this is a lenya phrase or this is a cheetah phrase or it's not that it's just there because you know sure, the voice a, you're writing and for. One of the things that we were so fortunate about with with, with Liza and Cheetah both is they could they could really do anything. Hmm. And, so, and so they give you a big range of possibilities. Hmm. Do you think you have written
0: for each of them a quintessential song? That I've really, never done a
1: quintessential anything. Either, really? So. Uh, I think there are certain songs which will be always associated with them, but that's just our good fortune. Hmm. In my mind, anyhow, Maybe This Time and New York, New York, are probably songs which will always be associated with Liza. All that jazz certainly uh, is is Cheetah, but these are in my mind. I don't know if that will always be true. And when you said, you know, the quintessential, I keep having to go back to what I said before. Fred and I were were carpenters and I used to say that and mean it in a kind of self-effacing way. Now it's something that, I'm, that I feel good about. I think that with all the romanticizing of the creative process that most people who don't do this uh, seem to feel or read about or is publicized, I admire the guys who are good at their craft. Hmm. Because you always
0: wrote in the same room, do you think that is an advantage if you were talking to young teams? Because nowadays we hear so much about people who will literally be sending lyric sheets or MP3s (laughs) across the country to each other as they're writing a show. Do you think the physical proximity, the act of literally writing together makes a difference? One
1: thing I can say without question is it certainly worked for us. I can't advise or tell other people what's best for them in terms of how they could produce. I don't know how, as for myself, it would be very, very difficult to be sending messages. Hmm. Uh, I don't mean that you always have to be sitting in the same room with somebody, but it's back to that discussion of collaboration we had at the beginning. I need, and Fred did too, that sense of collaboration, whether it's with the book writer, your director, your lyricist, your composer, unless you're doing it all yourself, and even there, you have to have to be pretty careful. But I'm not saying that can't be done. I just, It's just that I can't. Hmm. I
0: read that after Fred passed away, you said that you would not do any new writing until the four remaining musicals were produced. And from our conversation at the beginning of this program, you've, you've indicated that they are now complete to your satisfaction. So the obvious question is... Are there more stories you'd like to work on? Are there more songs you'd like to write? Are there
1: more people you would now consider collaborating with? Well, the simplest answer to that is uh, I'm working uh, with a young writer named Greg Pierce on a project which involves three short stories uh, uh, with the same actors it's a very tiny little piece. I expect to be able to do it with three instruments, hmm. and uh, and the same four actors in all three stories. We've finished one of them, and we're at work on the others. Is the
0: scale a conscious decision because you're setting out differently
1: than the way you? I work just with I'm much too self indulgent to, th- or, ra- or rather, that's not the right word. I You're don't entitled think to be
0: self-indulgent.
1: <laughs> no, no, but no, but I, I, th- I, I remember standing in my studio one day, thinking, "What do I feel like writing?" And what I felt like writing was something tiny, probably because I was just coming off a big production, and, uh, and my friend Greg, who is who is a short story writer, among many other things, is very gifted. Uh, I spoke to about him with him and we came up with this little format of these are short pieces, there will be three they will all be performed by the same four actors with a very small chamber accompaniment that you could do them in your living room actually hmm. and that's what I'm having fun writing right now hmm. And any thoughts beyond that, or that's
0: just now is now? Uh, now is now. And on that project, you are doing both music and lyrics? Actually, he's doing the lyrics. Oh, he is. Okay. Mm -hmm. So,
1: but the music, the music. It's a collaboration. I just want to have a good time. I think that's all I ever wanted. And that's what I'm doing now. And,
0: would you be satisfied if that piece is, let's say it gets beyond living rooms, but is that a piece that really just wants to be small at this point in your career? Oh, no it wants to be small. It wants to be small. And at this point in your career, do you think there's an expectation of what your work will be? Will people allow John Cander to be intimate and small? I don't know who,
1: <laughs> who, who these people. Anyone? I'm, I'm,
0: all of those people with expectations. I've
1: married myself, with or without their consent, to the Vineyard Theater because of the extraordinarily the extraordinary experience we had on Scottsboro Boys there, and I loved being there. We all did, and I asked the managing directors, "Could I live there?" Basically. <laughs> And, and to my delight, they said yes. So I have a home where I can go and develop something, and that's what I'm going to do with this. Well, thank you so
0: much for spending an hour talking about your work, and I cannot imagine what musical theater would have been for the past 50 years without Fred Ebb and John Kander. And John Kander, thank you so much for being thank with you us today. very much. On Downstage Center. Our post-production for this Downstage Center program is by Chad Bernhard, our researcher is Craig Thompson, our director of web development is Rob Perry, and our producer is Gail Yankosik. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from AmericanTheaterWing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing, and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theater Wing, and also be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization, and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.